This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Recovery Radio. My name is Steve Martirano. We're here talking about behavioral health in the broadest possible terms, uh, mental health issues that fall under that umbrella, as well as, of course, uh, which we've been talking about for years on the program, substance abuse and uh, treatment. We are paying particular uh, attention on this program to an event that comes up every year um, a week from now on the 31st of August. That's a date that has been designated Overdose Awareness Day. It's an international day of observation about the problems and dangers of uh, overdosing in the middle of this uh, drug epidemic that we are experiencing, not only in this country, but in other countries as well. And we're going we're to find out what that day is all about and why it's important to have that day. And we're going to take a, a look, as they say in television, up close and personally with, the regard, with regards to overdosing. I think like a lot of things about the disease of addiction and uh, substance abuse in general, overdosing is misunderstood. There are myths surrounding it, uh, a lot of confusion in people's minds about how it keeps happening, and you find out a little bit more about that straight ahead. To that end, uh, as we uh, note Overdose Awareness Day, we uh, go to our great resource, our old pal, a uh, frequent contributor to the program, Maggie Hunt. Maggie is Director of Alumni Services, and now I understand her uh, her uh, reach for power here in the organization extends into uh, business uh, – what is it, business development business manager? Business development. Now? Hi, yes. Steve. How Hi, are everybody. You? Good to see you again, Maggie. It's been uh, far too long. Has the summer been good to you and your kids? Yeah, it's been nice. It's It's been short, I think. I think it went too fast, but, yeah, good. But they're going back to school. That's Monday. <laughs> That can't be a bad thing, right? No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm ready. See you later. Go ahead. Have a time. In her role as um, a director of alumni services, Maggie has been a great resource in bringing us uh, folks to come in and talk, as we said, in a very personal way about their stories regarding substance abuse, the struggles with getting uh, sober. And today we're going to talk about uh, overdose as well. Uh, introduce our guest. Yeah, so I met Annie um, about five years ago, um, and she has been involved in the recovery community since since then. Um, if she does one thing right, it's that she keeps on coming back. She does not give up. Um, you know, she uses the term chronic relapser. I think she's just a chronic recoverer. I think that she keeps she keeps showing up, that's for sure. Um, and there's definitely a larger purpose in her life because she's still alive and here today, despite some of the things that she'll talk about today. I'm very proud of her. I'm very happy to have her on the show. Um, she has a new sense of purpose right now, and she's doing really well. So this is Annie. Hi, Annie. Welcome uh, to this program. We appreciate it. Hi. Thank you. Um you know, I'm no longer surprised by anything uh, on this topic. I have uh, been doing the show like almost six years now, and one of the things that are, people are confused about, and you're going to be able to talk directly to this, is this notion of of stumbling, failing, uh, and multiple trips to rehab, and in your case, multiple overdoses. Yes. And I just tell people, look, it's like running a race. If if you want to finish the race and you fall down, well, then you get back up. Absolutely. So, folks, to keep getting back up, I don't I don't view it anymore as uh, um, 
a, a terrible uh, shortcoming. So tell us your story. Where are you from? And give us the background. So I'm from Hershey, Pennsylvania, um, and I grew up um, really privileged, um, and I was I was very fortunate for that. Um, unfortunately, though, like my mother, she was an alcoholic, and from a young age, I, I started showing signs of like addictive behavior, or just kind of like that codependent because like I couldn't save her from her drinking, and like I learned at a young age that like love is not enough to get somebody sober. Like I could not love my mother into being sober, but I went on um, to art school. Um, um, and I started getting in trouble a lot. Um, I started doing drugs at like 14. Um, you know, and it progressed really, really fast. My dad had passed away early in a car accident around the age of like 12. Um, but drugs, the second that I took them was my escape. It was my escape from like the, the alcoholic family. It was just my, the escape from myself, like, et cetera. Um, and when I was 18, it was when I found heroin. I had no idea the chain that it would have on me. You know, like I've, I've been off and on in college at F&M for nearly 10 years because I just couldn't break away from it. You know, how old were you when you were dealing with when you were aware of and then having to deal with your mom's problems? Were you very young? Yes, about five. CYS had been involved with my family, but again, like she, she did really well for herself. You know, she owned a business, and so we were taught you don't talk about it, you act like everything's fine. But then behind closed doors, my mother was completely intoxicated, and we had to take care of her. You know, like pick her up off the ground and. If you paint it nice on the outside, nobody knows what's really going on like behind those doors. And behind those doors, it was dark. It mm. was really dark, mm -hmm. you know? You also come from what at one time was thought to be an atypical family background to one that's far more typical today. Yeah. Your parents were professional people? Yes, yes. My mother, um, she had gone on to be the first female CEO of Blue Cross Health Insurance. While my father was a philosophy professor with his doctorate in epistemology. Um, and so, yeah. I mean, I never thought that I would be where I am um, because they raised me different. You know, like I was raised to have manners. I was raised, I didn't swear. I didn't do all these things. And I started acting out very young and they could not understand why. They're like, we've given you everything you've ever wanted and needed, but it wasn't enough. There was something inside of me that was like, okay, there's something more. Do you have brothers and sisters? Yeah, I have a little brother. Um, his name's Julian Roth. He lives in Hummelstown right now. And then I have a stepbrother and a stepsister. And the relationship with them is much more, um, I don't know the word. It, yeah, it's estranged um, just because – and jaded because of the history with my, like, drug abuse. Well, that's a fairly typical family dynamic. They're, yeah. They're angry at yeah. you. They don't understand. They, they, they obviously didn't have the same uh, – Difficulties you had, or no, they did? Yeah. No, they absolutely didn't. No, yeah. not at all. And which again, like they look at it because of my upbringing. Why is it that you just can't get it together? I mean, like you know, I had a full scholarship to F and M through my father that I completely blew because of my addiction, which I'm fighting to get it back now. Um, but in their eyes, they think that if you have enough stuff then that should be able to kind of suffice. And it's it's not. Mm. It's not enough. Now, what you were doing and the way you were behaving is something that was not supposed to happen to folks like us. Yes, 100%. Yeah. 100%. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, no, so tell us about how, how quickly you got to the point where uh, 
you know, it wasn't recreational anymore. It was out of control. I mean, you say you say heroin very early on, right? Yeah, when I was 18. Well, actually, I mean, I'd say earlier than that. I was put on probation at the time. I was 13 um, in juvenile uh, detention. By the time I was 14 for fighting and acting out, bringing drugs into school. And while it was minor offenses, it kind of showed me what was going to happen later on in my life. Um, I could not stop. I was on probation. I couldn't stop drinking. I was getting underages. I was fighting in school, left and right, getting charged for fighting because I was under the influence. Um, my mother had actually called the cops on me about 45 times. She had a tracking device in my vehicle because she was so terrified that I, because of my drinking and driving, that I was going to die. Um, I went to AA for the first time when I was 15 and I said, I'm not an alcoholic. I'm not 21. There's absolutely no way. And they said, can you just have one beer? And I was like, nobody does that. You know? How old were you uh, when you were introduced to AA? Fifteen. Yeah. That's, yeah. A, that's a mistake that you hear a lot of. I mean, that that's – I've spoken to adults who go, I'm not an alcoholic. Why would I go to an AA meeting? Right. Fifteen-year-old. go. First thing you walk into the room and you go, everybody's old, right? Yeah, absolutely. I was like, I'm 15. I, I'm not 21. I mean, how can you know if I'm an alcoholic? Now, you are – there's no other way to put this, uh, Annie, uh, other than, uh, you know, graphically. You, you are sort of the poster child for uh, both um, – Relapse and um, overdose. One hundred percent. And and we are uh, talking about overdose awareness uh, this week on the thirty first, and uh, bringing attention to mm-hmm. to that. Try to demystify it. How many times were you in and out of treatment? About twenty seven. It's a, an encouraging sign, right? People th- thinking, "Come on, this is never going to work," right? Mm-hmm. But you don't look at it that way, do you? No, no, I don't anymore. No, no, I don't know if I. I, I think that personally, I did. Before, because I had only been to treatment 10 times, and I was always like, oh, I'm different than everybody else. I can't get it, blah, blah, blah. But then I hear about people who have been there more times and who are sober today, and then it just gives me more hope for somebody else. Um, Annie, uh, why did you keep going back to treatment? Um, The first time I actually got clean was four years ago, and when I gave it a shot, I was on probation in three counties. I was declared homeless. My mother had just died. I had nothing. My fiancé was in prison. Um, I had no choice but to go to a recovery house. When I decided – when I built my life up from absolutely nothing – I went on to live a life beyond my wildest dreams. The only reason I relapsed is because I stopped doing what clinicians, what people way above me that are trying to guide me, I stopped doing the suggestions. Every time? Every single time. Every single time I stopped taking suggestion and I tried doing my life on my terms, I fall. And so I was in a recovery house for 15 months straight, and I got high within 10 days of leaving because I was building up to that point. I had stopped months ago. It's not because I wasn't in a structured environment anymore. Mm-hmm. Some of those 20 trips were, uh, looking back on it, were, were each was each time in, in treatment, an, uh, in looking back now, an honest effort on your part to make it work, or were you, were you going through the motions sometimes? Sometimes it was going through the motions, but a lot of times it's you're it's desperate to feel anything but that feeling of just trapped and caged in my own body. I've gone to treatment after being, you know, like in, ingrained in recovery, and then, you know, people around me that love me, they want me to get help. I don't know if I wanted it as bad sometimes, mm-hmm. but I always tried. You know? How bad was your heroin habit at the, at the end? Awful. Awful. I mean, and the thing is with me is, like, I, I do everything, you know, which is terrifying. You know, like, my heart's gone out. I've had a stroke. Um, 
you know, and multiple bundles a day. I mean, Kensington, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, uh, we're talking about uh, overdose awareness here on the program today. Maggie Hunt, Director of Alumni Services, brings us our guest, Annie. She's telling us about her um, amazing journey, and that's the only way to describe it, 20 times in and out of rehab. And um, the only number that exceeds that, I think, is the number of overdoses, and we'll pick up on that on the other side. It's o- Overdose Awareness uh, Day on the 31st. We're talking about it in advance of that on Recovery Radio. Don't go away. We have more. Welcome back to Recovery Radio. Steve Martorano with you. Uh, we are sponsored by Retreat Behavioral Health from their Alumni uh, Services Department, the director of that uh, facility, as well as a uh, business development manager, Maggie Hunt, longtime contributor to the program. Maggie's with us. She has brought in our, our guest, Annie Roth. Annie has been in and out of uh, treatment as she uh, continues to try to straighten her life out with regard to substance abuse. Uh, Let's and let's get back to this notion of uh, picking yourself up and going back in. I mean, clearly you had some resources to manage to handle twenty trips in and out of rehab. Uh, how were you? You had insurance. How did that work? I uh, after my mother had passed away, um, I was dropped from private insurance, which then meant I had to rely on the state. Oddly enough, state insurance they'll fund me for a lot, um, which is actually really awesome, and it's there for people to utilize. Just a lot of people aren't aware of how beneficial it can be. So yeah, I mean, it. it I'd done long term treatment for seventy five days, and then I, I don't know. I mean, I've been to treatment an absurd amount of of times and for me it's that I know how great life can be you know and when you are trapped in addiction like there's nothing worse than a bag of heroin like cut with like anything with recovery the second that I pick up I'm miserable you know and some of my quote quote friends or people I'm getting high with are like what's wrong with you and I'm like this sucks it's not the same as it used to be years ago like years ago I was able to maintain a full heroin habit go to college had a 4-0 worked with kids um at this point, my body has started to deteriorate because of my drug use that when I go, I hate it. Yeah, that's you something know? else we hear. And, and folks on the other side of this situation who aren't familiar with it can't quite understand. You're not the first heroin user that's been on this program who managed for a very long period of time to be high-functioning absolutely, while, while using. So you claim what happens is the cumulative effect of the drug makes that ability to maintain your regular life impossible. Yes, absolutely. So this is a silly question. I'll ask it anyway. You mentioned briefly the first time you did heroin. Do you remember what that felt like? Yeah. I, I remember that every sense that I had was heightened. Every experience, even if I was just sitting on a couch, um, it just felt right. My entire body has been like aching for, you know, 18 years to feel this euphoria that I only felt through heroin. What was, what, and, and Mag, you can jump in as well. Um, was that a feeling of euphoria? Was it a physical sensation or, or, a, or was it a psychological sensation? And a lot of people say they felt they didn't fit and they were confused and anxious. And then you, you take this drug and suddenly everything seems fine. Was it a physical well-being that you feel or, or is it more than that? Oh, I would, say, I would say both probably. Like it's an overcoming physiological feeling I think too because your whole body totally feels different. Um, and in your mind, it's like just, you know, the synapses in your brain are just firing. Yeah, <laughs> you're yeah. Just, 
Yeah, there's something uh, mysterious for people who've never used heroin about that high. Um, clearly, there is something incredibly seductive about that. Um, when you first started getting high on heroin, did you have any any awareness of all that sooner or later you were it was going to move from this euphoric activity to a desperate activity? Did you ever consider that? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I mean, for me, I remember the D.A.R.E. program when I was in what, grade school? And not I – mean, it, it didn't grab my attention. And I, for me, I think that so much of overdose awareness has to do with being raw and honest about it um, and being graphic because by sugarcoating this, it enabled me – to pick heroin up and have no idea clearly about what was going to happen, what my life was going to become. Mm -hmm. um, in the context of in the context of substance abuse, it was just another drug you were using. Absolutely. I mean, you've been doing a lot of different drugs. Why not this drug? Yeah. The D.A.R.E. program is kind of interesting because this was a well-intended uh, program. These were middle school kids or high school kids? I forget. They were young kids, right? Middle school. Yeah, I was even going to say grade school. No, grade school. We might have even been grade school. I was in sixth grade, I think, when we first yeah. did it. And I was in grade school then. And refresh my memory. Right. This was a policeman or some authority figure yep, coming and saying, don't do this and trying to making it scary, right? Yeah, but they also made it like fun. No, I think really? they made it like it was like part of the curtain. pressure. And this is what's yes. going to – like I thought that all drugs – were I don't know that were were gonna kill me immediately. Like I was just I don't know. It was scary. Didn't stop you though, right? No, 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 no. no. Yeah. And then when you find out they don't kill you right away, you're like, ooh, this is great. They're I can feel like this, yeah. and I'm not gonna yeah. die. Yeah. yeah, it also sort of weakens the notion that someone can stand up in front of you and say, "Don't do something." Yeah. And if it turns out that you don't think they're telling you the truth, the other thing they never did in Dare, I'm guessing, is bring somebody in who had overdosed on drugs three no. or four times and exactly. said, "Here's no. the deal, kids. Yeah, it feels good, but I, you know, right? Exactly. They didn't do that. Not. No." We're going to take uh, a break or, uh, in a moment or two, but uh, so 20-some-odd times in and out of rehab, um, you know, that's sort of admirable. You're still trying. You mm -hmm. still try to get back. But you overdosed how many times? 20 at least. Tell, tell me, is there a typical overdose for you, and, and how did you avoid dying at any point along the way? Oh, man. Um, I mean, several times I fell out. I'd wake up. I'd still have the needle in my arm. Multiple times my fiancé has found me overdose. Like, I would be on him. He'd wake me up. He'd last summer alone. He'd Narcan me five times. He's broken down um, doors because I he had heard me hit the sink. Um, I actually overdosed about a year and a half ago. I fell back. I uh, hit my head. I gave myself a stroke, and the muscle in my brain dislodged from my right eye. Um, and because when I pick up heroin, heroin is not heroin anymore. What it was for me 10 years ago, it is now poison. So when I pick up thinking I'm going to have that same euphoria, that's not the case. I pick up knowing it's carfentanil, fentanyl, you know, but my addicted brain still says, well, maybe I'm, I'll be okay. Somebody might save me. It's sick. It's really sick. Annie Roth is our guest. She is um, in the midst, there's no other way to put it, uh, of a long struggle with substance abuse. I can tell you from looking across the uh, console here at her, she's clear-eyed and uh, energetic. So, I mean, uh, she's in the right frame of mind. Telling us her struggles with uh, substance abuse and overdose as we take a look at Overdose Awareness Day, August 31st. We're joined by Maggie Hunt. Maggie is uh, the uh, Director of Alumni Services and a friend of this program for sure. Recovery Radio. We'll be right back. Don't go away. 
Welcome back to Recovery Radio. We will uh, return with our guests straight ahead, but I, this is a portion of the program where I remind you that the uh, the rent is paid by um, Retreat Behavioral Health and has been for a very long time. Uh, in, again, I, again, I say this all the time. I could tell you, uh, I could spend an hour telling you um, about the fine work I've seen them do and people know that they can do. Um, now, covering a broader range of um, issues than ever before, not only substance abuse and treatment, but also the broader field of uh, behavioral health, mental health issues as well. Um, but that's not why they're su- that's not why they support the program. I mean, their reputation speaks for itself. Check it out uh, yourself. I give you the phone number and I tell you this every week. This will answer questions for you. I don't care what your questions are about either of any of those issues that regard behavioral health, mental health issues or substance abuse and treatment. You will get someone, uh, when you call the number, who will answer your questions for you. They will do it honestly and diligently. If they can help you, fine. If they can direct you where you can get help, all the better. And we also tell you that we we give you the phone number. We hope you never have to use it. And that's the truth. But in a bad situation, it can be uh, a real difference maker. So uh, Retreat Behavioral Health, 855-859-8808, with us uh, to talk about overdose awareness, which is we're being noted on the 31st of uh, this month, Annie Roth, who's in the middle of a, a stint through treatment. She's been in and out of uh, treatment fil- facilities for uh, many years and several times. She keeps getting up and trying again. She is also here in the unique position of telling us about her overdoses, which match her trips to uh, to rehab as well. Um, tell me the, f- the first time you, you overdosed. I was 18, um, and uh, I had gone with a friend um, to, I don't know, like Lebanon or something, and I had her drive so I could get high. Um, And then the next thing I realized is that there's a bunch of police and ambulance surrounding me, and I wake up in the passenger seat. And that was the first time I was narcan you know. Um, several weeks after that, I was narcan a second time. And that was hard because it was in front of my mother. Um, she's the one that called the cops. Um, and they came. And it was just really sad to wake up and see her, her reaction and, you know, and, and her begging me, like, is this not enough for you? Why can't you just stop doing this? And I remember we were going on family vacation really soon after that. And I had tried to detox for her. You know, um, but her loving me again was just never enough and vice versa. You mentioned the suddenness with which this thing overtook you. So you 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 uh, use the drug and then you say the next thing you remember is being revived. Yeah. By Norcan. So it's not like slipping under something. And I'm looking for the, a moment before you are, you know, unconscious where you're terrified. Oh, my God, I'm I'm dying or I'm overdosing. Did you ever have a sensation that you were overdosing? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, I, there's been times, like, I remember last summer when I had, there was, I was getting high around friends and I had called for, like, Andy, like, my fiance. I said, go get him to somebody because I knew I something was going, was going out. Something was going, yeah. going on bad. Yeah. Yes. Why doesn't that, why wouldn't one experience like that stop you from doing it again? Well, I w- I'll just say, I know for me, when I overdosed before, it was the great like thinking about what I was thinking about beforehand. It was the greatest high, is what it was. True. It wasn't yeah. a painful. I wasn't like, oh my god, I'm going to overdose. You weren't screaming in your no, head, oh my no. god. And I didn't even know until I woke up, and they were like, and you know, the police and the ambulance were there. <laughs> but, but it was the it was the greatest high to sleep. 
That's so true. Again, what what folks looking at this who, who don't understand it or haven't had the experience, they, they almost can't be expected to understand this, is that the um, the feeling you just described is uh, so hypnotic, so seductive, that you just go with it, right? I mean, you just you go with it. Well, I've heard stories of people being revived with Narcan who are upset at having been uh, detoxed. Did that happen to you at all? Oh, my gosh. Well, once you get hit with Narcan, and if you have a habit with heroin, um, you're going to get incredibly sick incredibly sick the sad thing as well is that i have met people that have said like i don't want to be revived because you revive me and i have to then go do heroin yeah. because i'm addicted and they'd rather die than be in the chains of that addiction yeah it's unbelievable it's again an, uh, a, a terrible irony of the, of the of the drug is that it can you can have that hold on you that when you revive when you are literally brought back from the brink of death your first thought is you just harshed my mellow yeah. Now I gotta go get high again, uh, Maggie. Do you, uh, so for people who again don't know what Narcan's all about, can you explain a little bit what does it what does it do to somebody besides revive them from the overdose? Yeah, Narcan is a direct intervention in when your body is like overdosing from the substances when your body can't take anymore. Um, and the Narcan that I keep in my house, which by the way, if you do have Narcan, they say don't keep it in your in your car. Um, keep it in your purse or like keep it on your person because if you're in a situation it's in your car it's not helping anyone but it's like a small little nasal spray um, that they have that will it's like a one shot that you just put right in the nose and then they wake up yeah Um, I actually have not personally ever had to Narcan anyone um, but I do have two doses in my house just in case yeah yeah well well um, you know we've talked about this uh, given the given the prevalence of this of this problem with opioids and heroin that is just staggering to think about. But everybody at home, most people at home has have a uh, first aid kit. Ours is filled with Band-Aids, cotton swabs, and, you know, maybe an ace bandage or two. But we live in a world now where, you know, it sounds crazy, but you should have some Narcan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Be- it's not even – it won't ever hurt anybody either. Like if someone's on the ground and – and you think that they might be overdosing or not, and you give it to them, it's not going to hurt them either way, whether, you know, hopefully it brings them back to life, but it would not actually hurt right. someone in any way. Yeah, you were lucky, uh, Annie, in that Narcan was available. Were there times when you overdosed and you got lucky? I mean, you, you, you managed to go through it, obviously, without Narcan yes. being involved? Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, I- I don't have an explanation for that. and But I do want to say as well, like, for people that don't understand, the feeling right before overdosing is like another universe. And I think that with picking up, you hope for that feeling. You just don't want to cross over into an overdose. So you hope to achieve that balance of that feeling but not death. And then when you realize you went over too far, it, there's nothing you can do. You're, you know. And then you just wake up. But um, there have been times where I've been woken up because of water splashed on me, been shaken abruptly. And and that was you know. enough to reverse the effect of, yes. of, the, of the overdose. Yeah. Uh, what's, the, what's the impact on one's family, <sighs> on someone uh, who not, in and out of rehab is already uh, baffling and annoying to a lot of people? You say you're estranged sure. from your siblings because they don't get why you keep going back. Um, but overdosing multiple times must really crush families, right? Absolutely. And I think for like to see an overdose, one, that can cause PTSD. And so much of like the discussion and the debate is, you know, should we give Narcan to these addicts that just keep picking up? 
for one, people forget that this is not just about the addicts. Even if someone doesn't understand why I keep picking up how I've overdosed or gone to treatment a million times, I think somebody can sympathize more with the fact that it's about also the families left behind. Because once that addict's gone because somebody doesn't agree with, uh, with Narcan or whatever the case may be, the family is left to grieve and the amount of people that I have seen die um, or it's Narcan um, I've been fortunate enough nobody's actually like not woken up in front of me but all of my friends that have died of overdoses I cannot count anymore I mean it's at least over 50 at least 50 people you know personally who have died of drug at overdose. least at least, if not more. Well, the other, the other, so we're right in the, in the midst now of, um, and one of the reasons we note Overdose Awareness Day <laughs> is the, the um, focus being of, uh, on harm reduction. And um, you're, you're, you're an exi- living example of uh, harm reduction. And in fact, in an ironic sense, you can look at 20 trips inside, in and out of rehab and 20-some overdoses as multiple and continuing failures. On the other hand, you can look at it as evidence that harm reduction works. Yes. Every time you're saved from being overdosed and you get back into treatment, you're at least you're 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 on that road. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I do believe that everybody has some like divine purpose. Um well, insofar yeah. as they're not supposed to die of a drug overdose, absolutely. they're supposed to do something else. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Right, right. And and it, it's unfortunate, you know, that this drug is like, you know, taking so many people um, the only way I have found to get out of it, because I am a drug addict that does every single drug if it's in front of me, the only thing that has helped are the tools that I have learned at these treatment centers. And to be honest with you, I usually get a different perspective every time that I go to treatment. For me, do I necessarily think that I need to be in treatment like every single time I relapse or go to a recovery house? Maybe not, but... I'd rather do that than be homeless and keep trying to do this on my own because every time I try to do it on my own, it does not work. Uh, yeah, and, uh, you, you, met, you mentioned that uh, uh, more than once. You know, the uh, the I, if I read one more time about an accidental overdose, I think I'm going to yell. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're all accidents, I guess. Do you do you was there any point during your re, your, your your relapses and your overdoses when when you just didn't care whether you lived or not? Do you remember any of those times? Um, yeah, I mean, because I just couldn't get it. I didn't. I did not understand why. I could have a great life if I was sober. I have support. I have love. I, you know, I'm talented. Um, why can I not get this? There is something inside of me that doesn't allow me to play the tape through. One of the cliche sayings I can't stand is we'll just play the tape through. If addicts had the capability of doing that, we would not pick up ever again. No, exactly. You know, our brains are not capable of doing that. And so, yeah, that frustration of not uh, being able to play the tape through absolutely made me want to die. We only have about a minute before the break. Uh, I don't know the extent to which you can actually describe this, but the cravings are what I think are are most fascinating. If we ever get to a point where we can do something about the craving, um, we we might go a long way towards solving this. Were the is that what happens when you decide to use again that you just – is it a physical craving, a psychological craving? What is it? Psychological. If I haven't picked up yet, so if I relapse you know, while I'm in recovery, that's absolutely psychological. Um, however, if I'm already dependent, it's physical. The physical is – it's too much. You know, There's nothing that can stop that. 
psychological. For me, it's usually that I haven't been maintaining my mental health. And by mental health, I mean such as like doing whatever I need to to remember what it's like because it's so easy to forget and then fantasize about getting high just one more time. Maggie Roth is our guest along with uh, with uh, Maggie Hunt from uh, Retreat. We have more with them straight ahead as we take a look at uh, overdoses here on Recovery Radio. Don't go away. We're back on Recovery Radio. Steve Martin Rano with you. By the way, I want to remind you that we, you know, we're not only on terrestrial radio in certain parts of this country, the Philadelphia metropolitan area, but we're now we're uh, found wherever good uh, podcasts can be had. We're we're everywhere. All the podcasty places. Look for Recovery Radio, and you'll be able to hear this program and uh, and many other programs that we've had on the air. Annie Roth is with us. Annie is in the midst of uh, continuing to try to get clean and sober, in and out of. Uh, treatment over the past several years and multiple overdoses. Um, Maggie Hunt has, has brought her here. Uh, Maggie is the, uh, uh, among other things, business development uh, manager and the director of alumni services for a retreat. She herself is now in a very long-term and successful recovery, of course, uh, and it has been in her family um, tragically. Uh, I, your dad was, you and your dad did a show with us, what, how long ago, a year or so ago? Uh, it was probably two years ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. And your dad overdosed, and, and uh, tell us about that. Yeah. So my dad was like the picture perfect of sobriety, healthy, doing really well. He celebrated a year sober in November of 2017, um, and everything was seemingly go great. I did not think that he, you know, went back into any kind of o- old ways, um, but he definitely stopped doing some of the things that he was doing early on. Um, and he didn't follow through with like some of the some of the stuff that we do in twelve step fellowships. Um, and December twenty seventh, two days after Christmas, I found him dead in the basement. And at first, of like, your of your house, he was of living, my house. He yeah, was he was living, living with, with me. That's why, like, I also know because when I first came upon him, I didn't even know that he had been using. Um, and so I thought that it, maybe it was just like a freak accident. Maybe he fell. Something you know, I didn't know what it was. Um, but then, like, I started to kind of think more and more. And I'm like, there's no other reason why somebody like his, you know, because he was f- rather, you know, on the younger side of. Absolutely. You know. Younger than I am. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of course, everybody's every, these days, everybody's younger so, than I am. So, um, yeah. And then um, and it was like a movie scene. You know what I mean? Like he was in the fetal position. Or no, actually, he was kind of in like a, it's a child pose of yoga. I don't know if anybody ever knows that pose, but he was in a child pose. And he used to work out. So at first I thought like, oh, maybe he's just working out. And there was it's just like an eerie. It's an eerie feeling when like you come upon like I've never had it before. But when you come upon somebody who is no longer with us, it's just a body. Um, and he lived in my basement, so I feel like now looking back, like when I opened the door, I feel like you know, like there was a gust of like in my in my PTSD from the situation. I feel like it was like a gust of wind, and and he was just no longer with us. And um, there was no paraphernalia anywhere around him that would have led us to believe it was an overdose until the next day when we found like empty bags. Um, so it wasn't immediate that it happened, um, but but it was obviously had the same. It was it was effective. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, and then we called nine one one. And I I remember even now I'll ask my husband like, well, could we have given him Narcan and would it have been okay? But he had already been gone at that point because you, because of the we time have it in the house. Yeah, I mean we have it in the house. Right. right. And when I went down because. Um, not to be like, you know, he was post-mortem, but he was still warm, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Right. So I thought perhaps he was still alive and that there was still a chance, but he was gone. Well, that's got to be a fairly common uh, reaction when someone overdoses and dies is everybody around 
thinks, gee, we could have done something else, right? right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever seen anyone die for drug overdose, Annie? Uh, I'm trying to think. Um, well, good. If you can't come yeah. up with yeah. one, good. <laughs> yeah. you, you don't forget. Right. Yeah, you, <laughs> you don't forget. So we, we want to – look, it, it, again, as I said at the beginning of the program, the reason Annie is with us and we thank her so much and, and Maggie brought her here is because it's Overdose Awareness Day, an international designation. So all over the world, people are stopping to do all sorts of things to uh, highlight the, the problems here with overdose. Uh, even though overdosing and death from overdosing has always been – a, a a factor in in this uh, story, it's never been more critical than now to remind people what's at stake. There, you know, you got very very lucky, right, Annie? Very very lucky. Most people are not going to be that lucky. No. And given things like fentanyl, they've changed the dynamic here. So so Maggie, for people who who can't get their heads around, first of all, they had a difficult time getting their head around the whole idea of addiction as a disease and worthy of being treated. Now they're expected to accept that and these other things that we call harm reduction because that's what they are. But for many people look like enabling. Mm -hmm. So what do we, we want to leave people with what notion when we talk about Narcan and we talk about things like very controversial things like safe injection sites and needle needle exchanges and all that. What do people need to think about when we talk about harm reduction? So I want you to think about a football stadium like the Eagles football stadium. 72,000 people who f- could fill up that that entire football stadium and all those people died last year. So it's not necess- it's about keeping people alive. We're killing off my generation, us millennials, like we're just being killed off. Um because of overdoses and drug use. So it's really just a matter of keeping people alive um, instead of just, like, continuing to die. Yeah. We've said this many times in the program. If if a a substance abuse were a communicable disease, and and in one sense it may be, but if it were like an airborne disease Mm -hmm. and these were the fatality numbers, we would mobilize every resource available, state, local, federal government. We'd have the Army out making sure people were protected from this disease So when I hear about harm reduction now, my mind is open to uh, what we're really talking about. Uh, Annie, I know this is probably a tough question for you, but it'll be the last one. We thank you so much for being really brutally honest. And a lot of people come in here with a lot of success under their belt, and it's a little easier for them to talk about it. But you're right in the teeth of this. Are you are you confident that that you're going to be okay? Um. I know that I'm either going to die to this disease and be in another obituary or I'm going to make it. There's no in-between for me. There's no average life. I'm either going to completely submerge myself in recovery um, and make this my passion so I'm on that side of the fence because, again, I'm not – I'm a black and white person. This time is vastly different because I do believe if I pick up I'm going to die. Okay. And you don't want to die. I do not. Not okay. at all. So that, may, so that makes your chances of uh, yeah. of succeeding uh, much greater. We, I was we, never scared before. Yeah. Now you are. I'm terrified. Well, terrified. A little fear is not a bad idea. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> good luck. Thank you so much. It. Have you back here in a year? Okay. I'd love that. All right. Absolutely. Uh, Maggie, we'll have you back next week. Yeah. <laughs> anytime. Back anytime. anytime. You want. Uh, Maggie Hunt and uh, Annie Roth, thanks for joining us. And uh, look look for us, as I said, wherever your finer podcast can be had. It's Recovery Radio. Take care. Bye-bye. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management.